the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, transcripts, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular. I'm Joe Kipinti. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Drew Scott. The topic of this show gets right to the root of why we do what we do here. We are the Radical Secular, and we represent and advocate for the ongoing human progress that began with the Enlightenment. The effort is to portray people like us as extremists by so many is quite telling. In truth, we are the ones challenging the true extremism of our age the reactionary forces of religion that seek to return this world back to a far more brutal era for all except the chosen elites of ancient hierarchies that we've talked about so much on this show. Who are we? Our title says it all. The modern term secular comes from the late Latin secularis, meaning worldly or pagan. In the Enlightenment, the term came to represent a basis for society that is rooted in reason and science rather than religion. This spawned an evolutionary change in humanity that is still in progress today. That is our project. And the etymology of the term radical is just as important. It comes from the Latin radix, meaning root. In modern times, radical has been used in the sense of radical reform of the electoral system to widen the franchise, for example. It's also associated with republicanism, civic nationalism, abolition of titles, rationalism, and the resistance to a single established state religion. It's also associated with the redistribution of property, the freedom of the press, and so many other benefits and, and real important changes that have happened in, mo in modernity. And that's us. And so let's face the point of the spear here and take on fundamentalism, shall we? Absolutely. Definitely. But first, again, I want to remind you all to make sure to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to listen. And please head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the radical secular. We really appreciate your support, even if it's just buying us a cup of coffee every month. We have support tiers from $3 a month on up. New episodes also post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at the radicalsecular.com. Now, let's do the t-shirts. Uh, well, this week I'm sporting a one-off custom that I did that reads, help destroy a family tradition. <laughs> uh, and I saw it on a poster in, I believe it was Friday the 13th part five. And I just saw that text on a poster. It offers no context whatsoever. And I just thought it was bizarre and hilarious. So I put it on a T-shirt because mm -hmm. after looking it up, I found out that the slogan was connected to some sort of uh, child abuse program, uh, anti-child abuse program, okay. which in that context makes sense. But this, this text here offers no context whatsoever. So it could apply to really anything, any kind of tradition. And in this case, I thought religion. Yeah, certainly you know, fits. I, Tradition has a, a lot to answer for. I mean, what it really is saying is we're going to do this because we've always done it that way. And that never makes any sense. No, no, it doesn't. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And speaking of tradition, last week I wore a T-shirt on the issue of climate change. I'm going to do the same thing again. Maybe I'm starting <laughs> one here, baby. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, I, there's the Earth. Right I think there. it's always good to look at our our Mother Earth. I mean, it's where we live. It's where everybody in history has ever lived, and it's what we're going to need to take care of if we want to continue. So, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And never goes out of style. No. Yeah, I don't think we should care about climate change because of any tradition. I think we should care about it because our absolute survival depends on it. You yeah. said it. You said it. Absolutely. And, you know, with religion, you know, the, there is that whole thing about domination of the earth and exploitation that's, you know, give is, that's mandated by God and all that. And that has to be directly challenged. And that's what we're doing here. Absolutely. Well, it's been extremely destructive, and that's why I wore it like this is a shirt that I've worn before. Ah. But it uh, this is, um, of course, evolution, and then evolving to the final stage where we actually dump religion in the trash, the three Abrahamic religions. So um, that's what we're going to awesome. talk about today. We're going to talk about fundamentalism, but there's you, as soon as you bring up fundamentalism, you have to end up talking about religion in general. And the good thing is, I think that we all have a slightly, maybe more than a little slightly, but a different perspective on this, which is a good thing. You don't want all, us, all of us to be parroting each other. So we're going to have a little debate about that here. So before we get to our main topic, let's go ahead and just talk a little bit about the news. And we can start with what we were discussing last week, the issue of Afghanistan. And we really still need to think about what this whole project going into Afghan was really all about and staying there for all these years, these two decades. And, you know, we talked about the military industrial complex and how that really plays into it, that so much wealth was redistributed to corporations and you know, contractors during this war. And also the other thing, you know, ostensibly you came in to fight terrorism, to get rid of Al Qaeda, how much, was our effort here really beneficial for the people of Afghanistan themselves? And that's a, a, an honest, honest question. There was some benefits for sure, but how much of the energy it literally went into other things? Uh, and of course, now we have to deal with the aftermath and primarily about evacuating and resettling uh, refugees. Right, guys? Yeah, well, you know, I think I thought you guys I missed last week's show, unfortunately, but uh, I thought you guys did a really amazing job at it. And of course, it's a very fluid situation. And today, you know, we had a huge uh, terror attack at the airport, which is, uh, you know, in which at least 12 or maybe even 13 American soldiers ha have died and some uh, unknown number of Afghans. And, and it was just, you know, again, getting out of this thing was never going to be easy and it was never going to be clean. And, um, you know, I had a huge emotional reaction to those images that we saw the first day. And because as much as everything you guys said was true and there are parallels to Vietnam, uh, the issues of the military industrial complex and all of that, I feel like also, though, I had always held out some sort of hope that even even in spite of ourselves, we might end up doing some good there and seeing, you know, those murals of women painted over, seeing the, the people in terror, seeing the people clinging to those those airplanes and just crowding, you know, being willing to risk their lives just at any remote chance of getting out of there was just something that made me think so much of of how what what is the purpose 
for America's power in the world and and how we could use it for good and how I mean a, an entire generation of of women and 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 people in general have grown up since we've been in Afghanistan under our protection. Yeah. And it's just so hard to see that protection being removed and now we know that it's just going to revert back to barbarism and yet and yet um the cost to us was incredibly high of even going in there in the first place. So I don't know. I just had a lot of mixed feelings about it. Drew, what do you think? Yeah. You know, I think, I think Sean is, is right. You know, uh, uh, the reality is that we, we lost the war, you know, we <laughs> simply lost it. We underestimated, you know, the, the Taliban and we underestimated their devotion to their fundamentalism, which I think is kind of ties into what you were saying at the top of the show, Joe, it's uh you know, it's barbarism and it, it feeds people's primal vicious instincts um, to be fed these ideas of, you know, male superiority. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff about, yeah. you know, hating the, uh, the, the idolaters and, and anyone who doesn't believe. And it's, it's horrible. It's horrible, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a great big mess. And the, the attacks this morning, um, very very sad you know it's it's horrible to see that kind of stuff but the, the, again the reality is that we we lost the war and there's a we're seeing the fallout of that yeah absolutely you know the sad thing is um that there's been atrocities all along there's been attacks all along americans stopped paying attention now they're paying attention again and there hasn't been an attack and there's been 12 you know 12 or 13 american gis killed and many many other Af uh, afghanis um and it's very vivid and visceral now, and it's going to play into our politics. You know, it's going to it's going to people are not going to remember for twenty years. They're just going to see now, and that's all they're going to use to make a basis of of how well you know Biden is doing. And it's it's, it's kind of a tragedy. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of one of the other parallels that I see is our underestimation of what we were up against. It's like yeah. In the Vietnam, it was the North Vietnamese's dedication to having their country and having their country free of the foreign invaders, as you know, they had freed themselves of the French and other occupiers throughout their history. So um, in that sense, they are a lot more devoted than a lot of people serving. I'm not questioning the, you know, the, uh, the dedication of our servicemen, but you know, they, there's something about that level of fundamentalism and the fact that you're fighting for your own country that I think and that it's, it's land that, you know, and people that, you know, and that they can blend in with civilians. You know, it's another parallel to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, all these things, I think, give them a home field advantage. Definitely there's that. But I think also. You know, there was some dirty dealings going on. The uh, the Afghan army was sold out and they were undermined. And basically the message was the Americans are pulling out. And we didn't right. so we didn't so much lose the war as we just decided to pull out. And that all that nonsense that happened with with Trump and getting the you know, that commander freed from the prison that he was in in Pakistan and, uh, you know, the deals that were cut in the, in the background really really just undermined the willingness to fight for those people who were working for the US. And and I think also one of the things that really disturbed me about all of this is that we've never succeeded in so-called nation building. 
But I think that's also because we haven't really tried. Like uh, we, we make this pretense of going in to help establish democracy or freedom, but we're really there for geopolitical reasons. And mm-hmm. so it would take a, you know, a multi-generational commitment to, to these people to overcome, Drew, what you're talking about, this sort of home field advantage where to them, they're, they're not sure. These, they want to pick the winner. They want to, they want to be on the side right. of the winner. And so um, if they knew that we were there for the duration and we knew that we were there, it wasn't contra- something that was controversial for us to be there for, for the duration. And, and honestly, it shouldn't be America. It should be the United Nations. The world should have some mechanism in place. I know I'm, this is Pollyanna pie in the sky stuff, but I think that, that, you know, the, the world has a strong interest in not allowing failed states because of terrorism and because of also because of human rights. So that's my two cents. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. So we could talk about this forever. I have so much more I would like to say, but let's save it and uh, for another show. Maybe we'll continue to follow this issue as it, as it progresses. Uh, let's just turn real quickly to another very <laughs> difficult issue, is which is the the pandemic and the Delta, um, you know, spike that we're seeing now. You know, we've just uh, went over a hundred thousand people hospitalized in, uh, with COVID in the United States. Again, um, we I think most people didn't expect to see that again, and here we are. And Florida and Texas are leading the way with record numbers, the most ever in those states. And the spike has not peaked in many places yet. The state of Florida is particularly just frust- really frustrating because they're, they're just denying it to the bones. I mean, just that even they're just not even reporting the data anymore in any, any really significant and, and sort of systematic way. Um, you, you know, you go on the Worldometer site and you see that, you know, they're, they're reporting five, six, seven people dying a day, which is really more like 200 dying a day. And it's just, it's incredible. Um, there's that. There's also the issue that's come up now big, big time is with the boosters where, you know, this is another point of resistance that's happening on the right and other with other people that are the anti-vaxxers. Uh, and of course, now they're all, all of a sudden they discovered that like big corporations are crooked, like all oh, big pharma critiques. Oh God. You know? Well, that's, that's because Trump said that Trump said that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's just ridiculous, you know, uh, because we all know this, everybody, everybody knows that there's <laughs> this graph that goes on with big corporations and they're tied into government and stuff. What's, there's nothing new about that. That's the same thing with, you know, the military industrial complex in, in Afghanistan. There, there's a pharmaceutical industrial complex. Okay. That's part of the corporate America. Okay. Not a surprise there, but it's not, it's not like that has any bearing at all in the fact that we're in a pandemic and we de- we need treatments. Right. We still do. <laughs> and they are the ones that can provide them for the pharmaceutical companies. So um, and in, in, in talking about that, too, the latest science, um, clearly there is show, there is a waning effectiveness with uh, the vaccines, although they're still very effective uh, with time. They're becoming less effective. So th- we're trying to get ahead of the curve, be proactive and not wait until they they become significantly ineffective before we distribute the the you know the the boosters and that seems reasonable to me i don't know <laughs> about you guys but um i'll be lining up for that booster yeah. yeah it's not a big deal shot these shots are not a big deal people are crazy you know it's just it's just simple logic because you know even if you can make the argument that we don't know the long-term effects of these vaccinations okay let's say you make that argument we also don't know the long-term effects of catching COVID. <laughs> 
well, don't no. know those either. Th this and, is, this, it's disingenuous. <laughs> the whole thing is, yeah, like, it is. Like this, that, yeah. that is not an argument that we don't know the long-term effects, okay? That's just not an argument. No, yeah. but I, I agree. But even if you were to make that argument, okay, you can make an equal argument that we don't know the effects of COVID disease, right, long-term. And we do know without a shadow of doubt that COVID has killed millions of people and the vaccine has hardly killed anyone at all. It's extremely rare. So just logically, just by that information alone, why are you resisting getting a vaccination when you know that Delta is going to reach everyone? If, if there was really a problem with vaccines, we'd be seeing lots of people being hospitalized right now for like severe vaccine reactions. And there's nobody. No, I mean, you can't hide something like that. No. <laughs> uh, the other thing that's interesting, I think uh, you're seeing uh, the, the typical, you know, reactionary institutions like the police unions, the fraternal order, the police are 100% opposed to mandatory vaccinations. Now, they're first responders. They should be vaccinated, right? And in a normal, rational sense, there would just be no, no question there. Um, the head of the union of the, the said, I think, John Catanza, Catanzara, something like that, mm -hmm. equated uh, vaccine mandates to Nazis forcing people into gas chambers. This is just crazy shit. I, I wonder mean, if John Catanzara, or whatever his name is, knows that COVID was the leading cause of death among cops in the last year. I don't know. He's denying, probably denying it. He probably heard it and it went right through, didn't even register, right? It's like way, it it's way more yeah. than, it's than, yeah. even, than even gunfire or That's anything crazy. else like that. It's, it's, it's the leading <clears throat> cause of death. But Sean, blue lives matter. <laughs> oh right oh that's right <laughs> i can't even anymore with this it's just you know and the this idea that somehow it's a matter of freedom you know when trump got up there he got booed for for uh asking people to take vaccines and then he's like oh yeah i know you have to have your freedom but you know might be a good idea to take it you know and it's just this is nothing to do with freedom the, the the right in this country has completely destroyed the notion of public accountability and public health it's, yeah. it's insanity. Yeah. I, I, I think he's he's only saying that to those people because that's who it's killing now is it's <laughs> his supporters who are unvaccinated. Yeah. You know, the, the, that's, the five the five states with the highest death rates are the five states with the uh, lowest vaccination rates. It's not a coincidence. It, I, it, not at all. You know, it's so self-destructive. I mean, when it gets to that level of self-destruction, you know, it's a kind of pathology. It, it really is. You know, not being able to see what's going on and just reacting to this propaganda and these. It's base. some real it's some real Jim Jones shit that's going on right now yeah. with Republicans. It's it's unbelievable. And, you know, uh, even the schools like they insisted that the schools be reopened and, and almost every school district that's reopened in the country has shut down within a matter of days of reopening. Yeah, I mean, this, it, there, you know, the science is pretty clear that Delta was much, much more infectious. It was a different kind of uh, disease, really, in a lot of ways, almost a separate thing. And they just, just didn't want to hear any of that, you know. No. Now, the, on the good news side, there's been a lot of uh, movement by corporations, local governments, so forth, to, to begin to be imposing mask mandates anyhow, and even uh, getting people vaccinated through mandates. So it's beginning to happen. It's way too too haphazard. It should be much more systematic. It should be much more coordinated, but at least it's better than nothing. I think a lot of people are still taking this seriously. And if it wasn't for that, we'd be in far worse shape, honestly. Yeah. I was seeing that some health insurance companies are raising premiums on those who 
won't get oh, vaccinated yeah. as well. Talk about the free market. Mm-hmm. Is I think it was Delta Airlines. Uh, they're, they're, yeah. they're, it's there's no ma- mandate for vaccinations, but you're going to get dinged for like 200 bucks a month extra if you don't yeah. uh, if you don't get it. So that will motivate some people Good for to, them. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to to mention before we move on is um, China. China is been it's almost left the news. We hardly ever hear about it, but it reported that it, it's gotten Delta fully under control. Uh, I believe it or not, I don't know. I, eh. um, it's hard to say. I'm but, skeptical of China because, look, I mean, probably about a month or two after the, in 2020, after the pandemic started, they also stopped reporting casualty figures. Yes, they did. So yes, we have no idea what's going on in China. And even before then, they weren't really reporting them accurately. Uh, the other thing is that's interesting, though, they announced a policy, an official policy of holding the unvaccinated accountable for spreading the disease like it's a crime now. Well, as it should be totally different. <laughs> you know, when so we're taking our cues and we're, we're being when we're being embarrassed by China's, you know, better handling of the pandemic, then that's uh, that's really saying something. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go ahead and move on to our main topic. And so we'll begin with uh, t- thinking about secularism, right? A secular society includes the individual choice either to be religious or not. It allows for religious communities within that scope. It also allows for diversity of thought, religious and non-religious. It does not allow for religious rule. That's the crux of it, keeping all governance secular on the local, state, and federal level. And that's our position here on the Radical Secular. In, to start, that's our base position, and we all deviate from that to some extent, but that's, that's our official position. This show focuses on those who would impose religious rule in the modern world. That's where we're at right here. There are only seven countries out of more than 200 that squarely fall into this category. Yemen, Vatican City, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Mauritania, Iran, and of course, Afghanistan. And the rest of the world has committed more or less to different degrees to secularism, meaning that they restrict policy making to non-religious means and institutions. Um, And all the major developed nations, the ones that are most successful, are firmly secular in that regard. So the historical context that created secularism is three centuries of evolving modernity, right? Beginning with the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, and in the world transformed by industrial age and technology that was spawned by that age of reason. Uh, religious fundamentalists are the vanguard against this change. They are the vanguard against secularism and secular society, which means they are directly challenging the, the Enlightenment project. And l- later on, of course, as the centuries move forward, the social justice project has started about a century ago and really got going, really with, with uh, the emancipation of slavery. And they, the, these fundamentalists are, that's the point of the spear there. They're leading the charge against encroaching secularism. They think that is the evil, the existential threat that exists in the world. Um, and you know what? Here's the thing. Based on this general social survey that's done every year, it's been, it's been going on for many decades, around 70% of members of the silent generation say that they know that God really exists today and have no doubts about it. 63% of baby boomers and generation Xers feel the same way, but millennials and Gen Zs are very different. 
44% and 33% respectively feel that way. So that this is a very significant shift in human consciousness, right? And over 40% of the youngest Americans claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Only a quarter say they attend religious services a weekly or more. This transformation is defining the ethics and morals that shape society. And this is really what it's all about, guys. I want to read you a quote from Phil Zuckerman in his book, What It Means to Be Moral. Then I want us to take a little critical look at morality here and, and this quote and then move from there. So, quote, in terms of who supports helping refugees, affordable health care for all, accurate sex education, death with dignity, gay rights, transgender rights, animal rights, and as to who opposes militarism, the government use of torture, the death penalty, corporal punishment, and so on, the correlation remains the most secular Americans exhibit the most care for the suffering of others, while the most religious exhibit the highest levels of indifference. <laughs> no surprise. Yeah. My own feeling is that this correlation is fair. But it's also a bit one-dimensional, which we can talk about later. Catholicism, for example, has a long tradition of helping the poor and the marginalized. Mainline progressive Protestant churches are certainly uh, do as well. But the correlation really does seem to apply particularly well to the evangelical community and fundamentalists, the most ardent voices of Christianity today, the ones in control of red states that still hold great power in Congress. It is this cohort that is a threat to the compassionate morality described here in this quote by Zuckerman. So here's my first question. To what extent should we be discriminating between different religious voices when it is evangelicals who are the direct threat, the ones trying to impose theocracy? Uh, I, got a, I got a long answer on this. Drew, you want to go first? <laughs> Man, that's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack uh, in all that. Um, you know, it, there's a lot of nuance in the world. You know, uh, we, we hear you know, are very critical of religion and religious thinking and fundamentalism um, and anti-scientific reasoning and all that. Um, but I don't think every single religious person is a fundamentalist, right? Like they outnumber us, you know, six to, you know, four or seven to three or whatever the figures were you were reading. So I think that we'd be in some serious shit if that was the case. So <laughs> I think, I think it's, there, there is a degree of nuance to recognize there. For example, I mean, Sean, I know you and I were uh, uh, adamantly supporting and shaming anyone who wouldn't support a Christian for the presidency in 2016, Hillary Clinton. Right. So right. I, think, I think there's, there's, um, there's nuance there. Absolutely. Well, it depends a lot, you know, like for example, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, these are all people who go to church and yet they don't allow their beliefs to interfere in any way. Like, for example, Joe Biden says he's personally against abortion, but he would never allow that to, you know, to to affect public policy. And I think that's that's official secularism. But I think we have to look at why is he personally against abortion? You know, like that. I don't really care because, you know, as long as he's not uh, using that to make policy, but why would he be against that? So um, when it comes to my answer to this, most people really don't like my answer because even amongst us, you know, uh, there are strong disagreements. And I, I think it's fine. Reasonable people can disagree on both the scope and political methodology of secularism. But 
My position, and it's no secret, is that all religions and even mildly spiritual points of view represent a dangerous and very slippery slope toward theocracy. I mean, what if Biden changed his mind, right? What if he said, you know, I'm personally against this and I'm going to I'm going to put that uh, view into law, right? What's stopping him? So, um, but I want to explain what I'm getting at when I say this, that it's a slippery slope and that it even covers people who are, quote, spiritual. Take me a few minutes to say this, but I was listening yesterday uh, to a very interesting episode of the podcast, Straight White American Jesus. And I always want to give a shout out to Brad Onishi whenever I can, because he's doing great work and it's a, just a kick-ass name for a podcast. Um, <laughs> so if you like our podcast, you're definitely going to like Straight White American Jesus. And the episode I'm referring to is dated August 25th, 2021, and it's called Ex-Evangelical Apologetics, Christianity and Capitalism. And he goes deeply into the connection between American evangelicals and a poor shaming, victim blaming form of libertarianism that equates wealth with godliness and poverty with sin. It's a deeply Calvinist and puritanical mindset that valorizes suffering and hard work for low pay. And it also justifies extreme wealth and inequality. This connection between Christianity and ultra-libertarian capitalism has, of course, been developed over many decades. It was started out in opposition to the New Deal and social spending, and it later became a cultural agenda to bolster right-wing candidates and just benefit the very wealthy. So this is kind of ironic since the biblical Jesus character was very explicit in his support for taking yeah. care of the poor. This non-biblical twist on Christianity is very much related to how the evangelical right has uh, turned opposing abortion and LGBT rights into a litmus test for their party, even though these subjects are barely mentioned in the Bible. So, But the root of this agenda and how it's made inroads into the American psyche has been the attempt to connect morality in general to religion and conversely to equate secularism and atheism with immorality, the devil and sin. Uh, you hear this all the time, constantly, constantly, uh, you know, baby eating atheists, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but Christian so-called morality, of course, as we've seen demonstrated amply in the Catholic Church, as well as in American Protestantism, has failed to end poverty. It's failed to protect the vulnerable either inside the churches or outside. And there's this never ending parade of child sexual abuse scandals which proves this, and that's not even mentioning the typical abusive patriarchal family structure of male headship. And um, we see rampant domestic abuse, adultery, and rape taking place within supposedly Christian communities. And we've seen these communities mounting rabid opposition to sex education, especially centering around sexual consent, right? And we have to ask ourselves why Christians have such a problem with consent. And I think we're going to, we'll, we'll, this, we'll explore this later on, but um, this alone should be a glaring red flag uh, that they don't want to talk about consent. And what that red flag really tells us is that Christian morality is anything but moral. Yeah, you know, this is really a moral question, isn't it? We're talking about right now. Why are we challenging fundamentalism? We're doing it on, more, on a moral basis, right? And they, and it's, morality is not a purview of religion. It is clearly more than that far more than that it, co it comes from our own nature our own evolution as human beings our own social nature right we're group social people and we need to get along that's where morality comes from that that's that's what's made us successful in in this world um i do want to say a couple of things before you move on sean if you don't mind yeah um first uh, the thing uh, about looking at politicians the, the, there's nuance there, and, and Drew, you're absolutely right. I agree with you that we need to be nuanced about this, and I do. I, I generally fall in line with your thinking on this, but um, 
In terms of politician, I have to say politicians really have to be religious. Do you know? Do you know the? You know, what is it? America is maybe what seventy percent religious and thirty percent agnostic and atheist, right? Something like that. Something like do you know that. What it, do you know what it is in Congress? Point zero two percent are yeah. not religious. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's like you. Almost, it's almost like a calling card. If you if you're an atheist, you're not going to get elected, right? So you have to you have to push that sort of part of your of your resume. Um, but anyway, getting back to um, to this topic here. Um, I think we need to really think about this as, as a challenge to our sense of morality, that we have an evolving morality, right? It's coming from things like the Enlightenment Project, and it's still working itself through. It's not, it didn't stop there, right? It, didn't, it evolved into social justice, and it's still doing that. And now we have constantly this, this reactionary force that's trying to stop that evolution, Right. And so in that sense, Sean, I get what you mean about religion, because religion has this tradition of claiming, you know, the, the moral high ground. And we have to challenge that as well. But I also do see, uh, you know, Drew's point that we have to sort of think about this, you know, people's are religious in our society and overwhelmingly yeah. so. And that's just a fact. And we have to, you know, incorporate that into our politics and our thinking and our philosophy. And we can work, and you're absolutely right from your point of view, John, to work on challenging religion as a whole. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't tell you to stop doing that. No way. And yeah. it's, that's a good, that's a good perspective that needs to be out there. Yeah, um, Sean, I think you're absolutely right uh, on a lot of levels, uh, it, just in the sense of, all of this kind of thinking, this sort of, you know, anti-scientific uh, reasoning, you know, whether it's rooted in religion, whether it's rooted, rooted in quote unquote spirituality, or, you know, in some of our discussions, we've talked about the, uh, what we call the woo bullshit, right? Yep. You know, energy crystals and all that kind of new agey sort of crap, right? It's all problematic. Like in that it sense, you're, you're absolutely right. And it, we're and seeing when it you in this those, pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you follow those train those trains of logic to their conclusion, they don't go to good places. But they are. I feel like they are kind of in different places sometimes in that in that order. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of good good coming out uh, uh, topics coming up here, and I and I want to say that yes, I, I think it is kind of a prerequisite. You have to profess some religion to get elected to public office in the U.S. And I think Obama basically governed as an atheist. I mean, he yeah. gave a shout out to nonbelievers. Um, Clinton, her faith is more important to her. Um, I think Biden as well. But you know, Biden caught flack. I mean, he was he was like they jerked his chain. The Catholic Church tried to jerk his chain yes, by they did. you know denying him communion. And um, so, and then and then it was hilarious that the that the one of the bishops who was involved in that got caught on grinder. But you know, this is this is what we're <laughs> dealing with here. And 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 there is a definite uh, negative correlation between um, you know uh, in terms of scientific adherence and willingness to accept secular governance and and religious belief it just it just is so yeah and, and i want to talk a little bit more about it too in terms of the conservative moral hierarchy because mm -hmm. that's really what please that's do please do really what what this comes down to and i i just i just want to emphasize that we're not against hierarchy here on the radical secular if, if your place in hierarchy is earned through knowledge 
skill, good character or leadership, then it's deserved. You should get, you should be honored for that and you should have a, an honored place in society. So, but the conservative moral hierarchy turns this idea of meritocracy upside down. It's, they state their moral hierarchy as kind of the natural order of things. And it therefore has nothing to do with achievement and it can't be opposed. It's, it's recipe for dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And this is from George Lakoff. Uh, and I'm just going to read through it real briefly. It starts out God above man, man above nature, the disciplined above the undisciplined, the rich above the poor, employers above employees, adults above children, Western culture above other cultures, America above other countries, men above women, whites above non-whites, Christians above non-Christians, and straights above gays. Now, this conservative moral hierarchy is everything we oppose. And every episode that we have done from, since we started has been railing against this moral hierarchy. And, and, and it's, not only just, it's not only destroying our politics, it's destroying the earth, right? I mean, our, our very home, everything, you know, everything you talk about, Joe, about climate change, this is all, Christians would have been on it if they cared about, uh, about the creation. And there, there was a, a, a small group of Christians that were into this creation care thing, and they were just swamped by the, you know, the, the conservative moral hierarchy and just marginalized. And, you know, almost no Christian denominations at this point care about the climate. So, yeah. um, and it doesn't matter. They don't, they don't care. The Republican leadership is just riding this to power and doesn't care who gets hurt. And, um, but there's something really interesting that Brad Onishi tweeted out and, it puts Christians on record as openly and vocally opposing empathy and compassion. Uh, and this, he, Brad Onishi tweeted out a screen grab, and it, and it was from an article that was written in 2019 by Joe Rigney of the site Desiring God. And his article, it's, there's two articles actually. The first one was called Killing Them Softly, Compassion That Warms Satan's Heart. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one was called The Enticing Sin of Empathy, How Satan corrupts through compassion. And I just like, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's really just a tragedy that we have this, we have to deal with this ideology now in such force. But, you know, I was looking at, I was thinking when you were reading that list of moral hierarchies, conservative, you know, I saw there was uh, this thing on, on Facebook. I saw this guy who was a real right winger was like, aren't we on the wrong side? He was looking at all the things that Taliban stand for. And he's like, mm -hmm. he's really wondering, well, aren't we on the wrong side? Look, they're, they're against gays. So we, you know, it's just, it's just like, this is what we're talking about. This universality of, of fundamentalism and this, this hostility towards empathy and towards, and towards, you know, inclusion. Yeah. I saw, I saw a meme earlier this week that showed, you know, the uh, the Taliban taking over, I think it was the presidential office in Kabul. And then right underneath that, it showed, you know, the January 6th insurrectionists. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. it's, it's, it's the same shit, you know. They're the same people, you know, the pickup trucks and people riding around in the back of pickup trucks with flags, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's just, I just, this idea of, of demonizing empathy and compassion is so, um, it's so vicious. And I wanted to mention anyone familiar with Christian apologetics has read C.S. Lewis and will be familiar with the book, The Screwtape Letters, in, in which Lewis writes a fictional dialogue between a senior devil or tempter named Screwtape and his apprentice Wormwood. Rigney's article is, it's, you know, 
it's written in this form, okay? It's written as as a, a letter from screw tape, right? And it's just demonizing, uh, uh, you know, compassion and empathy. And you know, I don't, I don't really even want to get started uh, discussing the preposterous notion of a devil that sits around all day looking for ways to tempt humans and lead them astray. Even when I was still a kid attending religious school, I found the concept of the devil to be even more preposterous than the concept of an all-seeing, all-knowing God. And I absolutely hated the screw tape letters, which we had to read in 11th grade. Ugh. Like all religious apologetics, C.S. Lewis work with, has this smarmy, unctuous quality of condescension and all-knowingness. You know, in a, in a certain sense, screw tape letters could almost be read as a kind of satire on religion because it... it but who knows what he was really going for? It's, it's just kind of this head-shaking, finger-wagging Christian apologetics that's circular, and it assumes its own premise, right? Uh, you know, we're all supposed to take this tortured dialogue between senior and junior devils seriously without laughing our asses off at this the absurdity of this concept. But in this particular modern redux of the screw tape letters, uh, this guy really, uh, Rigney, really pulls back the the curtain on what evangelicals are all about, which is actually the reverse of compassion or empathy, because religion is about what is written in scripture as so-called re revealed truth, and also the individualist kind of personal walk with God. Evangelicals often conveniently ignore the more compassionate attitudes that Jesus expressed, such as being your brother's keeper. And um, so... <sighs> Now I'm getting to the part where I'm going to explain why I believe that all religion and spirituality leads to dangerous nonsense when applied to politics. Because when you're talking about any form of revealed truth, it's inevitably things that were written down by human beings. And then these written scriptures are further interpreted by other human beings. So if we observe, for example, that some religious teaching is causing suffering, according to Joe Rigney, this form of compassion is doing the devil's work because we are identifying with the feelings of a suffering person instead of what he might think is best for that person mm. in society. And so right. religion just inherently in, in the, by the fact that it has this scripture sidesteps feedback and, and our, uh, and our feelings of empathy that we're just asked to put aside because scripture says so. And, you know, it's, it was just some guy who wrote something, right? And it's supposed to supersede all of our human feelings of brotherhood, fair play, and justice. And, um, you know, this is something we've talked about from the very beginning with Christoph, uh, the just world fallacy, and mm -hmm. that everything happens for a reason or is a part of God's plan. You know, and the second part of this justification is the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And there are numerous instances in scripture, such as the book of Job, where people go through immense suffering because they are being tested by God, right? And of course, the canonical example where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac as a test of loyalty. And there are numerous other biblical stories of meeting out scriptural summary justice and punishment, such as the Old Testament notion of killing rebellious children. So <laughs> this kind of touches on our discussion of capital punishment from a few weeks ago. Because uh, yeah. in highly religious cultures around the world, including the early American colonies under Puritanism, religion was used to support capital punishment, which requires suspending any notion of rehabilitation and certainly suspending our compassion or empathy for the condemned. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we took a deep dive into that. Uh, and I think at the end of it, we both kind of came to the conclusion that 
the death penalty generally was barbaric and that our civilization wasn't really in a place to implement it except in the absolute most surefire and extreme of uh, of cases like in that of say timothy mcveigh um so i i definitely see the parallel between that bloodlust that we see on the right in terms of the use of the death penalty and these sort of uh religious stories and fables that uh that you're talking about like job which i've always thought is a crazy story crazy story you know this reminds me um you know evangelicals have fundamentalists really support the death penalty but this reminds me i've been i've been listening to democracy in chains just on my drives and stuff. Oh, yeah. I, read, I read it a while ago and I'm listening to it. And mm-hmm. this so fits into the philosophy that was coming out of like the Cato Institute and the Koch brothers, Koch brothers, and all that <laughs> about the dangers of compassion and being too compassionate on a policy level, right? Yeah, like moral the, hazard. Moral, moral hazards. <laughs> and so, you know, the, there is this linkage between cap, not talk about capital punishment, talk about capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Capitalism is linked with this, with this, this Protestant evangelical fundamentalism so tightly at this point, right? Mm-hmm. This is one of the points of linkages. The fact that you cannot be compassionate, you have to be ruthless uh, to have a good society. And, you know, it's kind of insane. Well, Brad Onishi on his on his podcast, Straight White American Jesus, he, you know, the one that I'm referring to, he brings up a more compassionate doctrine, which is the Lutheran religious perspective, uh, such as what underpins the Nordic model of the social welfare state in places like Denmark. And these places are some of the happiest countries in the world. And those metrics aren't just about health and well-being. They are necessarily about community and social welfare. Uh, these people pay high taxes, but in exchange, they have a tremendously strong social safety net, including absolutely free university education, childcare, pensions, vacations, the works. You know, you're not going to be on the street in those countries. And he, Onishi says that this is because the Reformation got rid of the idea that faith and works could be separated. Okay. And this is in stark contrast to the later American emphasis on faith alone. This idea that by simply believing in Jesus Christ, a person could be saved. And mm-hmm. in the Nordic model, the government is understood to be a kind of partner with believers in helping those in need. So almost an extension of the church, right? Because like the church and state used to be melded. And so any social welfare was going to come partially from the church. But now it's completely separated. And the believers are seeing this as sort of this is how we express our faith. And um, right. so go ahead. I, I, I'm saying as opposed to the Calvinist model here in this country, right? I think that would be probably the best way to put it. Uh, which, which is pushing rather than sort of like the social democracy or democratic socialism you see in the Nordic countries is pushing, you know, neoliberalism, which is a very different political economy uh, that we're very critical of here. And this is where this is where Onishi kind of lost me, though, because right. Um, the obvious flaw in that logic is that American evangelicals are all Protestant, right? I mean, they it all came from the same lineage just because Lutherans aren't like that, you know, and, and so American evangelicals got caught up in this and they've completely adapted themselves to Trumpism. So moderate religion isn't really a doesn't really protect us. That's a good point. I mean, honestly, 
honestly, if if moderate religious people and and progressive religious people really feel that this is an unfair statement that we're, we're labeling them unfairly, they need to stand up and and challenge the these extremists in in religion because they're they're the biggest voice they are creating the image of what christianity is right now in the world and to americans right so if you if you are a progressive compassionate religious person then it's really up to you to show that that's meaningful and important that you're not just subsumed by this these these religious politics that are dominating over us well, you know, I, I, this might be a bad example because Thomas Jefferson had slaves and and raped his <laughs> one of his slaves. So, um, but he did have a version of the Bible where he cut out the sort of vicious parts uh, and kept the rest, right? And so, I will believe a moderate uh, Christian when they call for these pages to be ripped out of the Bible that that talk about mistreating women and slavery and all this kind of stuff, right? I mean, when has anyone? in any church in America ever called for passages of scripture scripture to be disavowed? Only the UU church, I think. <laughs> maybe, maybe the Unitarians are, 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 are okay, but my yeah. point is, is moderate isn't as moderate as we might think. Well, there's that part of it. There's also just the political, cultural side of it. They are, um, we live, we, we're, we're advocating for a pluralistic society. Mm -hmm. And so we have to say, well, as long as you're not causing direct harm, like the like the fundamentalists are, then you have a right to express your own views of life and your own practices within the bounds of being socially responsible. And if people can get, can do that, then that's secularism. That cover that cover is covered under secularism. So there is that. What you're talking about, Sean, is more of a philosophical point right not not a political point but a philosophical one and and a cultural one well, uh and and that's that's different ideas have consequences right and yeah. so if we if we think about a fundamentalist that person is someone who is most committed to taking their scriptures literally moderate religious believers are those who will go like well maybe not the slavery part right <laughs> okay and so they water it down with empathy and compassion they, they literally water down their fundamentalism with empathy and compassion. And, you know, you mentioned this thing at the beginning that, uh, from Phil Zuckerman, the quote, where he said that secularists have the most compassionate views of governments. And this is borne out in these very secularized systems of like Lutheran Protestantism that exists in Denmark and other, other European countries. And I think there it have, is. we have to admit that this isn't a coincidence, right? Yeah, it's, it's on paper, baby. <laughs> it's there, right? Yeah. The data is all there. Well, of course, it's data. Nobody cares about that, right? But um, if moderation, if moderation is better than fundamentalism, then pure secularism with no religion is best of all. I mean, that's my premise. <laughs> Drew, what do you think? I mean, you know, if ignorance is bliss, enlightenment is punishment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think Sean is right in his criticisms of all this stuff. You know, I, I, I think, I, you know, there's there's I hate to say a middle ground, but I think there's a somewhere in between where, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time where we can be critical of that, these ideas as our jumping off point for these discussions and our worldview, while at the same time recognizing 
there are varying degrees of actual damage in the world and understanding nuance and right. that, that each individual is different, you know, and that people all view and behave on these beliefs uh, differently. And I know this is this kind of sucks to hear, but like we you have to be mindful of not splitting the leftist coalition because a lot of people of color are very religious, uh, yep. you know, and a lot there's, there's a lot of religious people that are that are with us in terms of trying to stop the rights agenda. So we have to be very mindful of that. Listen, if we could if we could rely on the Supreme Court to uphold secularism, then we wouldn't have anything to worry about. I say, believe whatever you want. Oh, we can't. We we cannot. We cannot. And so, in a democracy, beliefs are going to have consequences. And so, the more people remain religious, the more they're going to vote for draconian policies and right wing agendas. And you know, and and they've got a, a, a Supreme Court now that's going to uphold that stuff. So. Um, that's really that's really all I had on that. Other than to say that, just to remind everybody of what Sam Harris said twenty years ago in the End of Faith, that so-called moderate religious adherents continue to make the world safe for extremists by keeping religious ideas off limits to criticism. And yeah. so, uh, yeah. and even the New Agers, you know, our friends over at Conspirituality Podcast. I mean, they have shown in spades how the how the New Age and the anti-vax and the spiritual and the yoga community are all kind of have come together to, you know, to really, they're as big, if not a bigger threat to science and, and reason and secularism as Christians. So Sean, I just do want to say something about your comment in regarding sort of soft spirituality and new ages and so forth. One of the problems that we have here is a, it's a question of semantics, because for some people, the idea of being empathic is spiritual to them. That's how they define it for themselves. It's kind of a new modern way of thinking about spiritualism. And not necessarily, that doesn't mean like spirits and ghosts or, it's, or right. angels necessarily. So, so like being compassionate, being mindful of nature, connections with nature, all that stuff is to people a spiritual experience. So that's not what you're talking about, I don't think, right? No, no, not at all. I'm I, there's I'm talking about the airy fairy kind of woo shit, you know, like which which some encompasses some of yoga, some of Buddhism. There's just a lot of stuff that really lends itself towards a kind of I don't know neo left libertarian, uh, conspiratorial, anti government, anti science. Yeah. Uh, I, I call them the neo hippies. The neo hippies, yeah, and and yeah. a lot of them, interestingly enough, became. Trumpers and and some of these people are hardcore Trumpers now and and I saw people make this journey from being hard lefty you know conspiratorial types to to full on Trumpers and this is why I just think religion yeah. is, it's poison I mean and, and not what you're talking about Joe not 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 a general generalized because what you're talking about seems to be more humanist right if yeah. you have empathy yeah. and compassion and you're in, interested in nature and 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 systems and the environment that's that's like us okay that's that's how we feel yeah you know yeah i mean yeah i think it boils down to life's big questions right like mm -hmm. why are we here where, where do we go when we die what ha you know what what happens when when after we're dead right and it's like i don't think that anyone alive has the answer to any of these questions right and so i i, I think it's okay to have different ideas about that since there is no answer as long as you're not using those ideas to implement social policy or you know uh, uh do harm basically through through government right but yeah. as an as an as i as an idea okay i think 
I have to say religion is poison and, and same thing with spirituality, right? Uh, I, I just, yeah. I don't see an exception to that. A, a truly secular enlightenment based society must create firm checks and balances on religious belief impinging onto the legal and political sphere. You know, uh, no nation that fails to check the religious impulse in all of its varied forms can ever be free of, from the risk of falling into theocracy. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's a, granted, it's a fair point. Um, we have a, a difference of opinion here in some in some respect. We did a show on this, remember, <laughs> a mm -hmm. while back? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. About looking at sort of consciousness and so forth, about what is, you know, reasonable to consider versus the woo-woo stuff, right? Where, where, where is that line, right? Where, is, where do you, when do you cross it, right? So, but yeah, granted, your point is, fair, is, is well taken, I think. Um, I do want to move on a little bit. Uh, I don't have deep personal experience with fundamentalism. I don't. I, I always, my family's been fairly secular. Even though my mother was religion, my father was, was an atheist, and my mother never pushed it on us. So I don't have that. But you guys, I think, do. I know you, Sean, you do. So, and this show is about challenging the agenda of the most, this most religious group we're talking about here. How have you encountered this in your life, Sean? I know you've talked about it before, but if you can just kind of sort of reiterate some of it for us. And also then, uh, Drew, I don't really know a lot about your, your religious background, but uh, it would be interesting to know a little bit about yours too. Well, I don't want to belabor the point about mine. I mean, I was raised in a cult. My parents were the cult leaders. They they claimed to take messages from ascended masters, and they had a large following, as uh, possibly as many as fifty thousand people. That's and, kind of woo. -woo. Yeah, it's pretty woo. It's pretty woo, and especially when you know she was predicting things like nuclear war and stuff like that, and people were believing her and and making big decisions yeah. in their lives based on that. So it took a lot for me to get out of that, and there's a lot of people I grew up with who who are not out of it. Who are still in it. So um, I, I don't really, you know, there's, I could go into endless stories about it, but I don't think that's going to serve our purposes today. Okay. Fair enough. Drew, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I'm like you, Joe, I don't, I don't have a ton of uh, personal experience with direct fundamentalism. Um, I was raised in a pretty secular home. Uh, my mother had a very religious upbringing with the nuns and the, the hitting them with the rulers and all that kind of stuff. And so the way she told me is that, you know, when, after I was born, my father, who is not a particularly religious man, he's kind of like, well, I don't know, kind of, kind of, maybe the kind of attitude, you know, <laughs> um, and he, he kind of suggested gently like, well, you know, maybe now we should go to church on Sundays because that's what like families do or, what have you, you know? And my mom was just like, no. Good for <laughs> <You know>? her. <laughs> like, no, no way I'm putting my kids through all that crap that I had to deal with when I yeah. was a child. So I was very fortunate in that regard. I didn't even un understand or know about religion until I got to kindergarten. And on one of the first days, if not the first day, a kid asked me if I believed in God. And I said, what's that? And they, they said, he's an invisible man who lives in the sky and watches over us. And I said, that's silly. Mm -hmm. Kindergarten. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. That would be anybody's first reaction upon hearing about this. So if you're not indoctrinated, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Anyway, let's go ahead and, and continue without this. I just we wanted to get a sort of personal sense of it. I think the, the viewers would be interested in that. Uh, I want to say one thing that might surprise some people here, that uh, fundamentalism is, a, even though they're anti-modern, it is a modern phenomenon in the way we're, we're seeing it. Prior to modernism, there was no challenge to theocracy. Mm -hmm. right? There was no need to challenge theocracy and the divine rights of kings. So as a, fundamentalism is a resistance movement to modernity. That's what makes it fundamentalism as we experience it, you know, as we see it in politics. It's a modern phenom phenomenon that way. Fundamentalists define themselves as being in a cosmic battle against the evil of modernity, Satan's work. They are anti-secular by, by design. And particularly that you see th things like in their in their discourse and their narratives, signs of prophecies in governments and world government and end of times rhetoric and all of that stuff that we we hear on occasion. And Sean, you probably know a lot more about this than I do because you you were directly exposed to it. Um, now, Drew, not somebody like you who's very attuned to popular culture. What trends have you seen in the arts, in films and media that speak to this sort of bizarre fundamentalist agenda and this belief system that I just sort of mentioned here? Well, I see more of a backlash to our popular culture, really, because I think a lot of our popular culture is actually rather secular humanist. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. If you look at like the, the major franchises that are, that are big in our, our country and in our culture, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Marvel. Um, these big powerhouse entertainment franchises that uh, that are, are dominating the box office, dominating uh, financially. Um, you know, you you see a lot of backlash from the Christian right about the values that they put forth because they're right. all very pro inclusion. They're mm -hmm. very pro LGBT. They're very pro uh, minority uh, representation. Um, and these sorts of things upset that white Christian worldview. And the more they lean into it, as Disney has with some of these mm -hmm. in particular, the more outrage you're, right. you're seeing yeah. from it. Yeah, interesting. Good, good points. Yeah, I, I do definitely see that as well. And I, I think there is a, definitely a trend there. That, and and it's, this is part of the existential angst that the, the religious right feels, right? Now, uh, Sean, I, I do want to get a little bit of this play of, of the halls of power around mm -hmm. end time narratives, you know, because it, it isn't just a cultural phenomena, it's a political one, which is really kind of frightening. Yeah, well, power is really the key term to understand here. And Christoph and I discussed this at length in our book introduction for Coral Annika Teal that mm -hmm. we, we wrote together recently, and that's going to be being published soon. But we talked cool. about this as the American Christian Power Apparatus, or ACPA. <laughs> Not a very good acronym, but it's it it works. That's exactly what it is, right? Fundamentalism masquerades as a strong submission to a deity and extreme adherence to the detailed observance of rituals and traditions of worship. But it's in fact a bait and switch because like you said, okay, this is a reactionary movement against modernity. It's 100% concerned with what the early Catholic Church called temporal power, right? Which is to say secular power. 
Obviously, the Latin root of the word temporal is tempus, meaning uh, that the phrase temporal power is concerned with time. And that can be interpreted to mean power over the time human beings are alive on earth as opposed to the afterlife, mm -hmm. right? Okay, yeah. All, all they ever do is talk about the afterlife and heaven and God and everything, but what they're really concerned about is, is now, okay? And mm -hmm. fundamentalists, they claim to be waging this spiritual warfare and to be concerned with saving souls. This is the greatest lie of all time. They actually <laughs> are fighting a physical battle, a pitched battle for earthly physical power. And by that, I mean, they want it all. They want all the money, all the authority. They want governance. They want to control every aspect mm -hmm. of life for every single human being alive on earth. And they are fighting firmly on secular turf. That is to say our turf, okay? They're fighting us 24-7 to pollute the public discourse, to undermine science and to worm their way into iron-fisted control of every human institution, bar none. And hmm. I really want to emphasize this here because we have to sidestep this endless, unresolvable debate over whether or not there's an afterlife. And there's absolutely no evidence for such a thing. We're mammals. Mammals die like every other species of life on Earth. The concept that the spirit carries on, whether it's reincarnation or whether it's heaven, I don't care. It's, um, it's one of the core lies of fundamentalism. And I just can't say this strongly enough that the moment you accept that you have even one more second of life after your body dies is the moment you become fodder for fundamentalism. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And this is what extends the power of fundamentalism and fundamentalist thinking into more watered down versions of religion and even the so-called personal versions of spirituality. And it's the basic gambit. Even robots and replicants in fiction don't want to <laughs> die. As the famous line from Blade Runner, uh, spoken by Roy Batty to his creator, Eldon Terrell, he's crushing his skull. I want more life, fucker, right? <laughs> <clears throat> you know, Every nobody can forget that because yeah. here's this replicant who isn't even human and he doesn't want to die. And we can relate to him, especially when he gives that amazing speech at the end, you know, but um, nobody likes the idea of ceasing to exist and... So by allowing themselves to wait and hope for an afterlife, human beings have opened the door to every manner of fundamentalist hijacking of civil society. And we keep holding this, you know, this door open with our every thought of what we think it's going to be like after we die. And so the power of this end times narrative is really not that complicated. It's, you know, fundamentalism, fundamentalism is the most powerful force of conservatism on the planet, and it encompasses tribalism, nationalism hierarchical family organization and traditional gender roles centered around reproduction. So modernity is breaking down the old structures in every single one of those areas, especially yep. in the areas of multiculturalism and LGBT acceptance, right? Yeah. So when fundamentalists fulminate about the end times, they're not kidding. They, they, modernity really does represent the end of their old ways of life that are tied to tribalism, blood and soil. And of course, as we always point out, toil, you know, Labor-saving devices we've invented in the past two centuries have destroyed the need for the so-called Puritan work ethic. Right. And it's it's not liberals that are doing this. It's modernity, right? That's yeah. what people don't understand. Liberals are, are an aspect, a part of the political expression of what's going on, but the actual mechanisms that are creating all this destruction of the old are things like technology and capitalism. Right, they are they are the, the 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 fundamentals of modern change. They are migration, you know. They are you know um, really structured around the political economy, not around politics themselves. 
And they blame everything on, you know, the liberals this and the liberals that or the socialists evil and so forth. But they miss the whole point. This, this is evolution. This is, this is global evolution. What, what, what you really, if, when you talk to people, and I've had extensive conversations with people, and they are mad that we're eliminating suffering. Okay? That's what it comes down to, that technology is eliminating suffering. And suffering is the key metric of godliness across nearly all the world's religions. They valorize it. And yeah. modernity has mitigated and ended a great deal of suffering. Naturally, it's reduced the need for scared and suffering masses of people to seek refuge in the world's churches, temples, and mosques. And religious organizations, they broadly failed to halt the progress of modernity. And they, they use modern technology. I mean, you know, and so uh, their response, though, is the same as it's always been to forecast a disaster. Yeah. But it's projection because yeah. what they're really saying is this is a disaster for us, for our religious organization, and that's going to result in disaster for the entire world because what would the world be without religion? You know, yeah. so they. <laughs> yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more that it really is about worldly power, right? They're after real power. They're after the, the reins of government, right? the power of the state, completely, a hundred percent. They may they may talk about other things. They may have, but that's what they are doing, right? And in a similar way, you know, there's this linkage with libertarianism, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also completely false because they're, inc they're incredibly statist, <laughs> if you can use that term, in their, in their strategies. They want to use the state to, as their hammer to get things done, right? The federal government especially, that's their entire strategy. They're changing, they're, they, they've infiltrated the courts, they've, they've done state houses, all of that. It's really, really based on this very modern strategy, right? In fact, a lot of them will eat, literally model themselves after people like Lenin. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. and, and, and also the sort of the grassroots activism of the 60s, right? That's what they're using to gain oh, power. They study Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals like it's the like it's the fucking Bible. And, and they have used those tactics against us. And furthermore, when they get in power, they do things like, you know, Texas Governor Abbott, who has has banned local governments from from uh, he's used the power of his governorship to ban uh, counties and states from from putting in public health measures. And so right. it's like they are all about the power. It's just different kind of power than what governments have traditionally had. So, Drew, uh, what do you think about these contradictions? I mean, they seem to really clearly to be paradoxes or contradictions, don't you think? I mean, yeah, this kind of speaks to to you know what I was saying about about nuance. You know, I think we just have to recognize uh, the the varying aspects in all of this stuff. That you know, I, I think Sean is right when he says ideas have consequences. Yeah, you know? I think that's absolutely correct. Um, but I think those consequences all vary depending on what, what it is we're talking about. Right. So yeah, it, well, it, you were saying it just that depends. you were saying that you think there's a real secular sort of humanist aspect to our society and our culture. How do you think th that people see this? I mean, are they, are, are people like aware of these machinations? Do you think do you see that? I mean, I think some are and some aren't, you know, I, I, I think there's, there are a lot of people who are just kind of tuned out and not really paying attention to any of these sort of social issues or political issues, the way that guys like, like us are, the people like us are, um, 
at, at the same time, I think there are plenty of people who are plugged in, but there are a lot of who are not. Who Do you are see any not. generational differences? You know, it's hard to say. So I, I, I'm in t- I'm pretty in tune with like my generation, but like mm-hmm. the generation below me, you know, the uh, <laughs> yeah, the, mm-hmm. the, the Gen Gen Zs or whatever you want to call them. I don't know what they're thinking. They're they're all into like Fortnite or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sean, well, what about you? Well, what's interesting about all of this is that, you know, conservatives didn't have a problem with Disney. They didn't have as much of a problem with Hollywood in general. I mean, everybody went to the same movies, you know, yeah. 10, 15 years ago until right. until Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and all these people started getting them whipped up into, you know, opposing the social justice aspects of, of Hollywood because they saw, I mean, representation matters. And we've said this before, is that all of these Hollywood has done a lot to move us forward and and has done a lot for secularism. And the Christians aren't happy about it. And, you know, what's what's interesting about this in terms of the of this end times narrative, okay, is a lot of people, even liberals who aren't religious, will say things like society is going to collapse of its own weight through the destruction of meaning. And they'll point to various, you know, uh, just general ennui, uh, drug use, crime, consumerism, uh, lowbrow entertainment as a result of collapse of religious values. And I, I even hear this from liberals and, you know, others will propose that it's it's not we're not going to collapse, but God will somehow punish the world for modernity through natural or even man-made disasters. And so I just like, <clears throat> I guess what I'm getting at here is that these things all feed into each other and it's it's bunkum. It's just bunkum of the worst kind. The world's yeah. not going to end except through our through through environmental catastrophe or war. Those are the things we have to fear, not through the culture. You know, yeah, I, and, I, I, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I do think that you're right about what you're saying regarding uh film and, and culture and whatnot moving us forward. You know, at the we're at the cusp of the Shang-Chi film coming out. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if you guys remember Black Panther, when that came out, mm-hmm. it was a mm-hmm. huge, huge deal and was a landmark for African-American cinema in general and had just had a huge cultural impact. Yep. Um, it's hard to say whether Shang-Chi will have the same impact considering the state of theaters and all of that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of that kind of representation, I think it very well could. Hmm. People are going to see it. So, yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Okay. So um, here's another paradox. Talking of speaking of paradoxes, fundamentalists claim to be anti-social, anti-collective in principle. They hate socialism. They hate any kind of collectivism. And they express belief in the individual. They're tied to capitalism and, and the free market and all that. And particularly, you know, in, in the prosperity gospel adherence, which is really kind of just really bizarre stuff, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. However, they are extremely collective in practice. They are very hierarchical. They follow an order. They have a discipline. They um, they they really are social beings. And mm-hmm. and can either of you speak about that contradiction? Well, I mean, religion has always. They've pl- they play the victim, okay, mm-hmm. and they've they've continued to play the victim for thousands of years. And this gambit is their way in to sort of seizing all the mechanisms of power of the modern state 
to implement their clearly stated goal of a worldwide theocracy. Just, just to give you an example, okay, um, Christians don't want to pay taxes, and yet they want all of the help for the poor to go through, to be private charity, to go through them, right? And that allows them to control that money. They, but they highly object, even if it was the same amount of money, right? They all give 10% to their church. Well, what if we said, give that 10% to the government and give it to the poor? No, 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 no. Uh-uh. That's not what they're interested in. And this is the American Christian power apparatus in action. They are mobilized and motivated uh, against government. And they're using what Robert Greene calls the surrender tactic to sort of feign weakness and gain sympathy and public support. And I want to read a brief quote from uh, the preface to the 48 Laws of Power. I really love that book. I don't know if either of you guys have read it, but it, it has so many great insights. And um, this is from the introduction. And he says, to some people, the notion of consciously playing power games, no matter how indirect, seems evil, asocial, a relic of the past. They believe they can opt out of the game by behaving in ways that have nothing to do with power. You must beware of such people, for while they express such opinions outwardly, they are often among the most adept players at power. They utilize mm. strategies that cleverly disguise the nature of the manipulation involved. These types, for example, will often display their weakness and lack of power as a kind of moral virtue. But true powerlessness without any motive of self-interest would not publicize its weakness to gain sympathy or respect. Making a show of one's weakness is actually a very effective strategy, subtle and deceptive in the game of power. Interesting. Okay, how many times have you seen Christians play the victim? <laughs> it's like their MO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when don't you? When don't you? And so Christian nationalists have maintained this same sort of list of boogeymen for at least 100 years. And that list includes every secular institution that acts as a counterweight to religious authority. And let's be honest, I mean, they have been in charge, okay? I mean, Christian fundamentalists have been running this country for a long time. And so with the New Deal and everything else like that, things started to shift away from them. And that's right. this reactionary thing you're talking about, because who's on this list? Public schools, universities, secular education, by extension, the scientific establishment, the free and independent press, the educated elite. These are the people that make things work and who control the physical nuts and bolts of our society. Uh, the courts, which are legally bound to disperse impartial justice. Uh, the taxing and regulating authorities in local, state, and federal bureaucracies. The medical establishment and those who would require treatment of their children's medical conditions in accordance with best medical practices. You've seen these, these nutcases who don't let their kids be treated, right? I mean, that was the sort of the precursor for anti-vax. And um, social service and child welfare protective agencies, enforcers of truancy laws. You know, the Christians hate the idea that anybody's going to tell them how to raise their kids, even if they're harming their kids, and even if they're not giving them a good education. So... In each and every one of these cases, they paint themselves as victims whenever they're called on to conform to any laws or standards that apply to everyone. And if you notice how insidious this is, they are only being asked to do the same things as everyone else. Yet they <laughs> claim that these laws and rules that apply universally nevertheless place a special burden on the fundamentalist and their families. To them, freedom of religion can only be achieved through the granting of ex exceptions and special privileges. You've heard this a thousand times. Poor us, we're so weak and we're under siege by society on absolutely every level. All we wanna do is be left, left alone to raise our children as we see fit and practice our religion. 
you know? Yeah, I know. It's like, you know, Tucker Carlson going up there and complaining about censorship when he's like, has the biggest audience in the, in yeah. the United States. <laughs> They're trying to silence me. Meanwhile, you know, yeah. Well, this is the classic surrender tactic that these fundamentalist groups use when in reality, you know, they've since, you know, since the 1950s, okay, with the addition of under God to the Pledge of Allegiance, the placing of in God we trust on the money, the capitulation of both political parties to, to participation in the national prayer breakfast, which is one of the largest power brokering events in the world. Yeah. Not just in our country. People from all over the world are at that thing. I mean, these, these Russians were at that thing. Uh, uh, you, you know, the, right. it's, it's just insane. So I don't think it's remotely an exaggeration to say that fundamentalist Christianity represents, you know, the real power behind the United States government and has remained so for generations, despite whoever has won or lost any given election. And this remains true despite differences in outward appearance between Republicans who loudly profess their faith while in office versus the more secular presentation of Democrats. And that speaks a little bit to this, what we were talking about earlier about uh, Clinton and, and Obama and, hmm. and Biden. They are still religious. Yeah. Listen, let's, let's take a look at sort of a direct look at what fundamentalists oppose about social justice, right? Feminists, for one. In their rhetoric, the destabilization of gender roles undermines the rule of God, the community, the family. They blame women's suffrage, birth control, and abortion. Any rights and agency that has been fought for and achieved for women in the last century is suspect. Why are fundamentalists so particularly fussed about women's rights? Well, if you're used to being in power, then equality feels like oppression. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I have to go back to one of our foundational texts here, which is The Reactionary Mind by Corey Robin. In that book, he discusses an extreme visceral fear among reactionaries that whatever forms of equality we seek to impose on society will not stop at the threshold of the family home. In other words, if we don't keep the conservative moral hierarchy in place in the larger society, that's going to mean that men will no longer be the unquestioned leaders in their families. And this terrifies conservative men like nothing else. And you just have to remember that prior to about 1980, marital rape was legal in all 50 U.S. states. It's difficult yes. for us to imagine. Yeah. Right. But incredible reactionary definitions of the marriage contract bear a lot of resemblance to slavery and once having given their consent to a marriage, women are expected to behave like chattel, or they, at least they were. And that means that their body remains the property of the husband for the taking anytime he chooses. And <clears throat> this also extends to their capacity as brood mares, which is really reminiscent of the Handmaid's Tale notion that fertile women, they're more or less the property of society with their fertility parceled out to commanders and the bearing of children as more or less of a community responsibility, right? Remember when they, they had their kids in The Handmaid's Tale, everybody, all the women got together in the, in the community and it was, uh, it was weird. But, it, you know, if they resist this, women would face brutal punishment. And in the, in the, in the case of, of the U.S., um, the way it was, you know, in the 1950s, mm -hmm. women were just beaten. You know, they just were, they were just, they were just beaten or raped and, and nothing was done about it. And it's, it's just the handmaid's tale is not that far from what many women have faced or are facing today in their traditional Christian marriages. So I don't know. I mean, 
Joe, I think that there's no greater threat to individual human rights than this notion of female fertility as collective male property. I mean, it, it extends to all aspects of the unearned conservative moral hierarchy, right? Yeah, so best exemplified by The Handmaid's Tale, but that was just an allegory of really real life, you know? I mean, it really was in many ways. It's what they like. I mean, you see The Handmaid's Tale, and this is, they may deny it, but this is their fantasy. This is absolutely that what they what they want to see happen. I, I'm not caught up on the most recent season of that show, and I need to, but it's just, it's hard to watch that series. It's a it is hard to watch. It's a difficult show to watch. It is. Even though it's really well done, it's just, uh, you know. And another thing that, I mean, I, I know it's been mentioned, but, you know, the fact that uh, Elizabeth Moss, right? That's her name. Mm-hmm. She's a Scientologist. I know. What a, what a paradox here. You know? <laughs> like, like, that's, I mean, do you not see any connection as you're, like, reading these scripts and making the series? Like, any parallels I didn't at know all? That. Oh yeah, between anything that you experienced with the crazy Zenu Church, not not nothing, nothing at all. Okay, all right, I guess uh, whatever. That makes <laughs> I mean that makes it doubly hard to watch. And I think that this is a, what you're pointing out here is a phenomenon that's true of almost every. You're like no one thinks they're in a cult, right? It's other yeah. people who are in cults, right? Absolutely. And even though the cult has made up is made up of thirty million people, it doesn't matter, right? It's still if it's acting like a cult, it's still a cult. The size is irrelevant, right? People think cults are small and tiny and like fringe, and not necessarily. Well, the Trump cult is one of the worst cults in yeah. the world history. It really is, yeah, and it's huge. Now, also, let's take a look at. Well, let's put it this way: God, according to you know the, these fundamentalist beliefs and Christian beliefs in general, have chosen. Uh, Christians to call back the people of faith to prepare the world for one final revival before Jesus returns to earth, right? Um, There are Christians all over the world. Colonialism sought to that. Uh, So why are they so hostile in so many ways to brown and black people? Why does this movement have such a racist and white nationalist face? They have formed them from the beginning. In 1990, the world's Christian fundamentalist association was this meeting, I think in New York City, first major gathering, right, to organize the political aspect of this. Uh, It was exclusively white, exclusively Protestant at the time, right from the start. And it stayed this way, has stayed this way all along. In fact, it's gotten more so in the last 20 years. Um, It's been consistently anti-immigrant. because immigrants generally, generally tend to be non-white. They generally tend to be non-Protestants in the United States. So what's the deal here, guys? Well, I think um, if we, we've, we've basically established that fundamentalism is reactionary. And uh, if I, I, I can read a quote from the, the book, The Reactionary Mind, which really, I think, describes this very well. Okay. And he says, despite the very real differences between them, workers in a factory are like secretaries in an office peasants on a manor, slaves on a plantation, even wives in a marriage, in that they live and labor in conditions of unequal power. They submit and obey, heeding the demands of their managers and masters, husbands and lords. They are disciplined and punished. They do much and receive little. Sometimes their lot is freely chosen. Workers contract with their employers, wives with their husbands, but its entailments seldom are. What contract, after all, could ever itemize the ins and outs, the daily pains and ongoing sufferance of a job or marriage. 
Throughout American history, the contract often has served as a conduit to unforeseen coercion and constraint, particularly in institutions like the workplace and the family where men and women spend so much of their lives. Employment and marriage contracts have been interpreted by judges, themselves friendly to the interests of employers and husbands, to contain all sorts of unwritten and unwanted provisions of servitude to which wives and workers tacitly consent, even when they have no knowledge of such provisions or wish to stipulate otherwise, end quote. And so this is speaking to your point. It's not just white men versus white women, right, in terms of this hierarchy, but it also concerns keeping domestic servants in their place. Mm -hmm. Long after the abolishing of slavery, black Americans continued to work as higher domestic help, almost always at poverty wages. Now today we see many Latinx immigrants, of course, mainly women, playing this role. Large, larger social inequality delivers desperate female low-paid domestic workers, right? So there's, a, there's an economic interest in this. Um, yeah, good point. It's not just birth control and abortion that drives men nuts. It's also women's economic equality. How many women in America are stuck in bad relationships where they suffer domestic abuse simply because they can't afford to leave? A substantial number of men strategically insulate themselves from relationship accountability by trapping women into domestic servitude and lives of abuse simply because the women lack the resources to strike out on their own. And there's also always an implied threat of violence that sadly too often becomes actualized. Even if they could potentially leave without being threatened with violence, many women choose to stay in abusive relationships because they fear economic ruin, having to take a huge hit in their standard of living and potentially losing access to their children. This was the story of Coral Annika Teal, who we interviewed mm -hmm, in February right. in episode 33, which was called Raped for God. She eventually left her abusive marriage. And of course, she also lost her home and access to her eight children and wound up having to work two minimum wage jobs to survive. So we can see that various forms of capitalist wage slavery and unequal wages for women are a huge part of maintaining the domestic hierarchy. Whenever you hear the term family values, you can be sure that keeping women subservient and financially dependent on men are a major plank in this reactionary platform. Family values is not even thinly veiled code for permanent patriarchal dominance. And let's be clear, the conservative moral hierarchy is explicitly religious. The very fact that God is at the top of this fake hierarchy tells you everything you need to know that the religious drive for power, first and foremost, is about the maintenance of the hierarchy. And we constantly harp on this as our regular yeah. listeners know. Yeah. Sorry, well, Joe. I mean, it's, it's, you're starting to see things come together here, right? You have this hostility towards the social democracy and, and the social welfare state and statism in general, it's how they perceive it. Uh, because the state is actually, a social democracy creates checks and balances to try to ameliorate these power imbalances between women and men, between people of color and white people and so forth. Literally, there, there, there's legal laws and so forth. For example, you know, divorce laws and so forth that try to deal with these particular power imbalances. And this just, it's maddening to them, right? They really find this really offensive uh, and, and also existential problem because it is righting some wrongs. It's very similar to the way that uh, people in the South reacted to the freeing of the slaves. Not well, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and okay, so perhaps the people that are most in the crosshairs of the fundamentalists are the LGBTQ plus community, right? Mm -hmm. There's a particularly visceral history of oppression against non-normative expressions of sexuality and identity. 
right? And I, you know, maybe I'm begging the question here, but why is that? Like, can you guys just kind of focus in a little bit? I mean, it 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 just challenges, you know, the status quo essentially. I mean, at least in a lot of these people's minds, they have this, you know, uh, uh, husband and wife, Adam and Eve sort of mentality, and anything that challenges that challenges their entire biblical worldview, and they don't want to do that. They don't want to question anything that their clergy or their parents indoctrinated them with. They want to think that it's all great and perfect and that they're going to heaven and all that, all that jazz, you know? So anything that challenges that sense of heteronormalcy is upsetting to them. And that upset turns to rage or, or that, or, you know, it's, it's repressed homosexuality or what have you. Um, from right. those types of people, I, I, I find that to be very often the case. Right, right, yeah, and of course, it's the Judeo-Christian status quo we're talking about, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Well, and 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 Muslim and a lot of other religions right. are very anti-gay. But yeah. so just talking about Christianity, sure. though, we know that like, okay, there's Romans one, and there's maybe a couple other passages in the Bible that condemn homosexuality, but still, that's not even really the bulk of it. Because the Bible condemns eating shellfish or mixing milk and meat, but you don't have entire political parties railing against anyone eating oysters or beef stew or something with milk in it, right? So it, it can't just be scripture. It, the answer to every question about religious abuse and hypocrisy goes back to the same thing I've been harping on this whole episode. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but uh, heteronormative family relationships are vehicles for the expression of male dominance over women and children. Hmm. And Absolutely. On the surface, we can observe that religions have always been concerned with fertility, right? It's, as a method of extending their power to the next generation, raising up the next generation of believers, which also explains the strong emphasis on religious education and opposition to public schools. And the lack of fertility is an obvious reason for religions to oppose LGBT lifestyles. But it goes a lot deeper than that to what I mentioned earlier about the household hierarchy. LGBT people, of course, have their own families, but and they can have children with surrogates, they can adopt, but they aren't generally following the hierarchical pattern. And that's incredibly threatening to those who do. And right, if so you're saying, Drew. Yeah. yeah. It, if, and, 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 well, what you said, Drew, also is, is, is definitely the case that there are a lot of, of closeted gay men living as heterosexuals and they just, their, their dominance is how they deal with their rage and their, and their repression. For sure. Um, yeah. I think you're right, Sean. I don't think it's about scripture because honestly, if you look, it's not just the Sermon on the Mount, right? That talks about compassion and helping the poor. It means literally hundreds of passages in the Bible that talk about serving the poor, right? And it's completely ignored. Ignored. Right? Ignored. It's like, no, we don't want to do that, right? We need to make them suffer this so they work for low wages so we can, you know, control the labor market and, or, or, be our servants or whatever. It's it's so there's more it's more complexity, there's more nuance to it in terms of it for sure. Well, and of course the Bible, you know, the, the notion of original sin and and Eve and all of that, that it just there's so much hatred for women in the Bible. And if you know, Christians already hate the idea of birth control and abortion. And this is because it disconnects the sexual act from conception, which they believe to even be a sin among heterosexuals, right? So gay relationships, which aren't going to result in conception at all are just hundred percent non procreative sex in the Christian view, hundred percent sin, right? The entire purpose of that relationship is for love, pleasure, and personal fulfillment it has nothing to do with God. Right? So we can't yeah. have that. <laughs> right. Now, 
here's a thorny question moving on a little bit are there any differences between christians and islamic fundamentalists is it primarily one of intersectionality of power and privilege i mean what i think of is christianity is a religion of colonizers right dominate the world where islam is a colonized religion in a sense what do you think about that does this play out or what do you think well i mean islam is a much younger religion right so i think it's it's more in its uh uh infancy than uh than some of some of these other ones um so its place in the world is a little is a little different i think um but some of their their, at their core you know i think we were outlining some of their attitudes about women are very similar some of their attitudes about homosexuals are very similar so there's definitely crossover there but as far as like their role in the world right now as it stands you know um it's it's difficult to quantify you know they've they've each each one has done damage throughout history whether you're looking at the crusades or 9-11 or whatever right so it, it just depends on what point in time we're talking about uh right now i think they ha- they hold different places uh in the world and in terms of their impact negatively um right now we also have to look at the fact that the region that is now the Islamic world was very dominant in knowledge and art and mathematics and culture for a pretty substantial period in history. And that was when Europe was suffering through the Dark Ages. Islam was founded in the early 7th century. And I'm not an expert in the history of Islam, but a lot of it had to do at that time with the political situation. It was a very practical thing, defining Islam in opposition to Christianity and Judaism and controlling political rivalries. I mean, I was reading that some of the holy months in Islam were established to allow safe passage because there was so much violence. And so um, we have to remember also that for most of history, church and state were one and the same. And so any of the historic Muslim caliphates wouldn't have been that different from, say, the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also know that radical Islam is a much more modern creation, which it is. dovetails with what you were saying, Joe, about about you know fundamentalism being reactionary. And the Quran itself is very much like the Old Testament of the Bible, concerning itself with spelling out religious law. And of course, various regimes in that part of the world had a wide range between strict theocracies and more tolerant visions of Islamic law. But radical Islam dates to the early 20th century and the writings of an Egyptian cleric, Said Qutb considered the father of Salafist jihadism. And he was a contradiction in many areas. On the one hand, he worked to improve secular education among Muslims, but he also believed that the Quran mandated that men were the managers of women's affairs. And this is really interesting. Also, he went to school in the U.S. for a couple of years, beginning in 1948 at what is now the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado, right? The father of of Salafist jihadism, right? Um, He also studied at at Wilson's Teachers College in Washington, D.C. and at Stanford University. Wow, I didn't know that. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, Yeah. This guy, though, he he apparently in his American experience, it really he was really offended. He railed against American permissiveness and he hated the westernization of Muslim culture, particularly the Western emphasis on individualism and by extension, the rights of women. He referred to the, quote, mixing of the genders in America as animal like. What does that remind you of? Hmm. You know, uh, these racists, right? Um, except for he was just a just a just a fucking sexist. Uh, he saw Americans as quote numb 
to faith in religion, faith in art, and faith in spiritual values altogether. So we can see where he got his religious fundamentalism from. It was literally from America. Um, he hated Marxism, and he was staunchly anti-Semitic. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, so this guy, was he was thrown in jail in 1954 uh, for a plot to assassinate Egyptian President Abdel Nasser. Right. He wrote his anti-secular and anti-Western manifestos from prison in which he exhorted Muslims to use their religion to implement what he considered social justice, which consisted of opposing Western and specifically American decadence. Khatoub was in and out of jail for more than a decade and was finally executed in 1966 by hanging. His execution has turned him into a mar martyr for modern jihad. And I know there's a whole lot more to explore about this and I'll probably get dragged for oversimplifying the teachings of Islam, but I don't need to study the theology of the Quran to understand that fundamentalist Islam and fundamentalist Christianity are absolutely fruits from the same bad tree. And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, that's the tree of religious hierarchy and dominance, especially of women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, if you look at the two of the biggest countries, Islamic countries like Egypt and Turkey, they were much more secular a few generations ago than they are now. They've gotten yes, they much were. more extremists. It's it's that that's been the modern trend. This this fundamentalism has really taken over, right? A lot of these countries. Well, Ataturk yeah. was a radical secularist, and he completely he completely de you know de Islamified Turkey, and and Turkey was on the verge of joining NATO up until uh, Erdogan got into power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of this. Uh, Go ahead. There used to be. I don't know if it's still around, but there was this um, Facebook page called my stealthy freedom i think it was and it was hmm. these women in countries like iran and so forth just taking discreet selfies of themselves without their face coverings and oh, sharing yeah. them on social media and i just thought that was some of the ballsiest like bravest shit like just the willingness to to break those norms i think you know seeing stuff like that gives me a little bit of hope in the world that that people are seeing that placing these kinds of barriers on people based out of tradition and religious thinking is toxic and poisonous and not awesome. Not no. awesome at all. <laughs> and then, so when, when we see what happened in Afghanistan, right. With, you know, like you said, Sean, 20 years, at least like, women got a reprieve, girls got a reprieve for a little while. And some, some of these young women and girls have not, don't know any different. They don't, they don't know the brutality I mean, it's still it's still conservative there, right? And this, you know, it's still it's still Islamic. It's still it's it's still you know cons uh, sexism and so forth, but not the level of what you saw under the Taliban. That is a whole different ball of wax. And now we have to. That brings to mind all of the women all over the world that are experiencing this, not just in in Afghanistan, but I mean that's particularly bad. There's about half a billion women who are suffering under various forms of religious rule. Yeah. It's something that, wow. that liber liberals are terrible about this. Liberals yeah. are justified by saying, oh, that's their culture. We can't tell them how to live, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This, liberal this is women, the thing I touched on last week. Absolutely. Yeah. L liberal women will defend a burqa. It's, 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 it's horrifying. Bogline. Yeah. Well, last uh, topic I want to talk about. If, because we're running kind of long here, but it's an important one. Uh, we need to consider the political strategy specifically about this fundamentalist movement, the innovative ways that, to address the religious concerns of 
common people that they use. They create institutes, magazines, network, right from the beginning. This was the strategy set up by that meeting in the 19-teens that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, building a network of day schools, colleges, seminaries, missionary agency. More important, the movement then later established a print and telecast industry after World War II. It created a system of parachurch organizations to meet the spiritual need of various groups, youth groups they really targeted, unmarried people, veterans, and so on and so forth, right? This was very systematic. Uh, And public schools have been one of their biggest targets, as you mentioned earlier, Sean. In the early 20th century, they challenged the curricula by presenting anti-evolution bills. The famous one, of course, is the monkey trial. Um, which pitted the fundamentalist politicians Williams Jennings Bryan against the agnostic lawyer Clarence Darrow, and we all we've seen the you know we've seen the, the performance mm-hmm. of that many times, right? Um, Bryan won, but Darrow really got the moral victory there in some many ways. Um, but then in, an, in in our times, it's not just challenging the curriculum; they're literally just eliminating public schools altogether. Uh, how can the left position itself in a way to fight these strategies? What can we do? I mean, I would say normalize secularism. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have to be the dominant voice in the party, but I feel like these kinds of discussions uh, and, and awareness of these points of view are only going to advance these ideas further, just generally speaking, in the uh, lexicon of, of cultural ideas. Yeah. The internet has been good for secularism, let's put it that way. I mean, we've gone we've we've gone way up. And as a matter of fact, the the nuns, the people who believe in no religion and don't go to church is now as big as any of the Christian denominations. It's about equal to Catholics or or Protestants um in in the United States. It's 20 something percent. So, hmm. we ha- if if we could organize, we have um a big we have a big voting block to vote for secular values. And I think, I think we actually haven't done enough in that, in that department. And maybe, maybe we, you know, as we go forward with the radical secular, maybe we can uh, become part of that to help organize this group because it's like, it's truly like herding cats. And I just want to say also, there's, there's really no easy answers to the problem of fundamentalist opposition to secular education because they've turned this into a zero sum game. And it, it might as well be the Scopes Monkey Trial because, you know, and we could do a whole series about this, but, uh, you know, religious conservatives who are dead set on preserving their moral hierarchy are also dead set on destroying public education. And they have made this death by a thousand cuts. And yes. they really would like to establish an alternate reality, a complete alternative universe where science has no say and kids are fully indoctrinated with a religious worldview. And of course, now when they graduate, they can, you know, they can go to private school, they can go to Bible college, and then they can watch Fox News, right? It's, they're just lifetime uh, Republican voters, lifetime people who live in another universe. And that began, was the plan. It was the plan. It's been the plan the whole time, the seven yeah. mountains strategy to take over all seven aspects of society, uh, including culture. And, and I, I don't have them in front of me, but yeah. there's a list of, this, of seven things, business, culture, education, government, you know, et cetera. Um, yeah. And this whole thing began with the evolution controversy, as you mentioned, but the real impetus for the destruction of public schools began after Brown versus Board of Education decision mandated school integration. That just amped it up to 11. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, it's very true. 
it was an insult to their moral hierarchy that a religious that conservatives have never gotten over. And we remember that Virginia actually closed its entire school system for nearly two years yes. rather than submit to integration. It's It's been a bitter fight ever since. And even in its inception, the funding of public schools through local property taxes created a highly unequal system. Desegregation attempted to correct that. But the monkey wrenching of the public school system by religious conservatives has gone far beyond it. They've attacked textbooks. Uh, they've gotten elected school boards. They've set up private school networks. They've rapidly opposed teachers unions. They've been responsible for the charter school movement used to get vouchers and defund public schools funneling public money toward private religious schools. They've set up an extensive homeschooling network, which, I mean, there was a whole show about that on straight white American Jesus. And <laughs> now they're taking aim at the teaching of American history. This is their latest gambit uh, to oppose critical race theory and also against any kind of multicultural studies. So conservative opposition, honestly, to equal truthful secular schools has reached the point where they've put so much so much money and so many resources toward this. I don't know how possible this is to repair the damage so long as the Republican Party remains in power. This, this, it just seems like it's too far gone. Well, it does. I remember when I was living in Pennsylvania, um, I was kind of considered for various reasons of, of putting my son in a private school or doing like um, doing some like uh, alternative thing and there was just there was no secular option where it was none right. zero so I, we didn't we kept him in the public school uh, it was a very bad school that's why we wanted to, to do that but in a lot of places in the country I mean we, we Easterners here you know in Massachusetts that wouldn't be the case but in a lot of places yeah well and this is the vicious cycle right because once you get the public schools into a death spiral where even liberal parents are pulling their kids out what hope is there right yeah yeah. And it, it is really at the heart of, you know, controlling people, right? Education, all of these different sectors of, of life, right? The seven, I can't remember what they all are either, but it's comprehensive, right? That was the strategy. And it was not incidental. It was very purposeful. Yeah. Well, they're in their end game now. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot tonight. <laughs> I hope uh, it's been good. I think it's been good. I well, any final thoughts? Um, you know, I've been uh, I've listening a lot to a, a folk singer named Frank Turner, and he's got a song called uh, Glory Hallelujah, and it's all about secularism. And there was a, a section of it that I thought uh, was, was in keeping with uh, the themes of the topics of today. Uh, it's, quote, I know you're scared of dying, man, and I am too. But just pretending it's not happening isn't going to see us through. If we accept that there is an end game and that we haven't got much time, then in the here and now, we can try to do things right. We'd be our own salvation army, and together we'd believe in all the wondrous things that mere mortals can achieve. End quote. Yeah. Yes. Nailed it. You nailed, nailed it. it. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and so... That's our show for today. Remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, support us on Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Monday at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles uh, weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Joe Kipinti. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular.
The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti.